0: Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS, the world's largest membership organization for anti-financial crime professionals. In this episode, I talk with Ken Blanco, Chief Compliance Officer for the Financial Crimes Unit at Citigroup, who is also a former Financial Crimes Enforcement Network Director and Senior Official with the Department of Justice. Ken and I talk about his tenure at FinCEN which coincided with the passage of the Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2020 and the creation of the Corporate Transparency Act. Ken shares his insight into what the private and public sector should understand about one another in order to fight financial crime. I hope you find the podcast informative and that you'll subscribe to Financial Crime Matters either on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Here we go. Well, it's a pleasure for me to have today here at the Assembly, Las Vegas, 2023. Live, Ken Blanco. And Ken, we've done this before. We did it once in Hollywood, that's right. uh, but it, much has happened since then. It, was it has. It
1: has. And this is much more intimate, I have to say. This is, you know. Yes, we are in our booth. That's, right. Are, uh, that's right. That's right. It's exciting. So uh, Ken
0: is the Chief Compliance Officer, Financial Crimes Unit at Citigroup. That's right. Uh, but I think famous, uh, if I might say so. Uh, for a uh, directorship at FinCEN. Time also, and if you want, you can sort that out as we begin, but time also uh, with the DOJ, uh, doing prosecutions, also doing asset forfeiture. And so yep. um, well, maybe we just get right into, just talk a little
1: bit about FinCEN. Oh, FinCEN was such a great experience, and I, I don't think people realize the hard work that gets done at FinCEN and and just the great people that are there, and what it means to the financial crimes community to have FinCEN and the support from FinCEN. And it's interesting that you talk about it. You know, just the other day as I was flying from Dallas International Airport here to Las Vegas, there is this monument, this little section at Dallas with an American flag in it with the name of all those who lost their lives on 9-11. And what's important about that is that FinCEN receives so much of its Authorities because of that one event. And I think that people forget why, or the purpose of FinCEN and, and what it is established to do, and that is to protect people from harm. And as you know, Kieran, it, it serves two purposes, right? It is the financial intelligence unit for the United States, but it is also the administrator and the enforcer of the BSA. And what's behind the BSA, and people forget about it, it's not just the laws, Rules and Regulations. It is the purpose behind it. That's what's important. Mm. And when people remember that, they understand how it protects their families and how it protects their loved ones. And it was an interesting look as I was walking through Dallas and I saw that and I go, wow, I can't believe I'm on the way to Vegas to talk about the very laws that were established, mostly because of that event.
0: Well, FinCEN did have such a huge position in our lives and everything after 9-11. Sure. Um, you also... Uh, were director during the time of COVID. Yeah, that's right. And I wonder if we could talk just a, a minute about that. It has seemed to be that maybe the effects of COVID, first of all, which seemed to have set in motion a whole bunch of digital crime that was sort of beneath the surface, but became
1: much more so.
0: And and some thoughts about like how you started to deal with that.
1: Yeah, that was an amazing time. It was good and bad, right? And, uh, bad in the sense of what was happening to people who were perishing because of the virus and and also the effect it was having on the economy and the fear of what was going on and without getting into the specific conversations of what we talked about because I can't do that but I can tell you what what the concern was and it's an obvious concern all that money that the government is pumping into the system and who is gonna get it and who's gonna go after it mm-hmm. uh, because as you know time there is a crisis or anytime there's a new development, whether it's technology or procedure, the first people there to appear are people that are going to take advantage of the gaps and take advantage of the generosity, either of the government or something else. And rogue states who were there to make money, right, to get that money and use it for bad things. So that was certainly on our minds of what was happening. That and obviously our staff, right? And protecting our staff and making sure that they're taken care of. And you, know, yeah, you had to uh, keep
0: running. During we had this. to
1: keep, we had seen back in October, we had already gotten, or in, in November, we had already seen what might be happening. So we started preparing at Vincent. We started ordering laptops. We started doing all these things to make sure that we were ready when it was there. When it came, I think February, March. And when it came, we were ready. Uh, and the staff was ready, and and that we were able to work from home and continue to do the job of protecting innocent people. Uh, But it was an amazing time.
0: Well, that sounds like uh, among the things that you could say that you got right about uh, COVID. Maybe you could also say something a little bit, given your DOJ connection history, you know, uh, it's going to be a topic here, ongoing prosecutions of some of the COVID fraud stuff. Yeah. What have we learned? Are there things that FinCEN put into place? Are there mechanisms now to track this kind of crime better than when it started?
1: What we learned was open communication with law enforcement, open communication with financial institutions, getting the pulse of what's going on. I mean, what happens, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this later on the public-private partnerships, but what ends up happening is that, you know, at FinCEN, we're seeing one side of this, the financial institutions see another side of it. If there isn't a conversation, you're not seeing the whole picture, Carolyn. And we felt that at least at that time period during COVID that we had just open communication with banks and, and other financial institutions and with law enforcement. I was lucky to still be very connected to the Department of Justice, talking to them and being very connected to other parts of treasury. So that part we got right and what ends up happening in prosecutions, having been a prosecutor for 30 years, it takes time for those cases to be investigated and takes time for those cases to come to fruition. You're seeing some of that now, yeah. uh, some early on, some of it now, the obvious came early on, right? Uh, but now you're seeing the more sophisticated people being prosecuted because it takes time for the DOJ and, and other institutions to put that, that kind of information together.
0: So another thing that marked your tenure was that you went right up to, and obviously it was developed, you know, and and so far FinCEN has this whole reg writing role and consultation role on what becomes legislation, uh, AMLA and CTA. So you had to contribute to those. And maybe you can talk a little bit about, as you look at where we've gone with those, has the reality matched what the hope was at the time? So Karen, listen,
1: That whole process, that AMLA and BO and CTA, if you remember, that's been 25 years in the making, okay? There were a lot of people that put a lot of sweat equity into that over time. It just so happened through a confluence of events, it all came together. And I'll tell you, I think somebody who doesn't get a lot of credit for this is Secretary of who really pushed it, Uh, and I think but for him, I don't think, and Justin Messinich, who was the deputy secretary at the time, they really supported it and really advocated for it. We were ready for it because we had been talking about it for so long, and what I think that some people don't know is that we had, at Vincent. uh, we had, through the BSAG gotten a whole bunch of financial institutions and law enforcement together during that time period for an intensive, what is effectiveness? What is risk-based approach? What are the things that we can change? FinCEN exchange, notice, all those things were already being discussed. Yeah. Uh, we had brought people down from Washington, D.C. We had meetings in New York. Those meetings went on for six, seven hours. Many of the people you see here at ACAM for participants in that process. And what Congress did was they took those writings and that information and lifted it almost in some places in whole, and put it in legislation. So a lot of that was discussed. Now, how does that process work? Listen, the legislative process is not an easy process. It takes time. Right, I I think we've
0: seen that uh, this week uh, in the face of a government shutdown.
1: Listen, you cannot, in my humble opinion, expect organizations or government agencies like FinCEN to write these rules in a year. That's not gonna happen. And if it does happen, it's not well thought out, right? FinCEN, I think, has worked itself admirably, given the time frame, the time pressures that it was given, and the lack of funding that it received. So there is that process. But what the worst thing that can happen, in my opinion, is that it get rushed. If they need more time to write those things, I think Congress should give it to them, because. Again, we've been waiting for this for 25 years where everybody has been complaining that the AML structure needs to be reinvigorated, it needs to be rethought out. Well, here it is, guys. Make sure it works and make sure it works in a very thoughtful way.
0: But, you know, one of the things that you uh, touched on the legislative process is uh, it's difficult and there is some disappointment that I think goes to the legislative process about accessibility and whether there's too many exceptions to it. Now that you have this foot yeah, in the private sector. Yeah, uh, Are there some things that are disappointing about it? And But, but you, you've made a good argument that at least it's out there now and there may be more later. But anyway, are there there's some
1: disappointments? There, There is. Listen, there's always, in, in the legislative process, there's always going to be disappointments because the legislative process is consensus. It is compromise, right? There are going to be things in there that we don't agree with, whether there's some exceptions or not. But to your point, what you just mentioned earlier, it's now in writing. It's there. Now let's debate it and as time goes on, we can make it better uh, as the process begins. But I got to tell you, there's some really hard challenges, right? How do you um, structure access to beneficial ownership information through a system, right? How do you do that? That's not. Those are not easy decisions to make and not everybody's going to be happy about it. People forget it's not just about law enforcement, it's also about privacy. This is a sensitive information that needs to be taken care of, access to it, of which should be limited.
0: Yeah. You know, I think that leads to another question about FinCEN. And I think it's interesting to ask you this because you now maybe can say more about it. FinCEN has just huge missions. I mean, a huge number of missions. It is the FIU, as you say, for the United States. Huge. The largest economy in the world. largest economy in the world and you know it writes regulation in in conjunction with Treasury as a whole I, I gather how the process works It also has some oversight responsibilities for MSBs when they, you know, in conjunction, I guess, with IRSCI. If I, it, correct it, me if I get any of this no, wrong. No, it has the oversight for it it has, is, Right. I mean, it, it, it,
1: that's what they do. Yeah, and it, it, it uses IRS to get uh, some. Oh, of course. I mean, they are great partners.
0: But the point is, I think that every director, and we, we now have Andrea Yacke has just started, what her priority is going to be, you have to kind of choose what you're going to do. And I think for among one or two of the directors, there was an enforcement action, emphasis others have even sometimes simultaneously while they were doing some beefing up of the uh, fiu capability. anyway yeah there's there's these difficult priorities how do you see the difficult priorities how do you sort them of ma- out how do you think yeah. you sorted them out
1: you know i i hope um that at least when when i was there that we tackled them all right because they're all and and i think we had the luxury where we could i think vincent sits in a really different position today because the priorities have been set for them by congress uh, because their, their focus is clearly what AMLA does and clearly what the CTA is about. That's their focus. Their resources are going you, you know, towards there. But I will tell you, um, that doesn't mean they're they are not gonna do enforcement actions. They've got a great enforcement team there uh, and they will do those. But you have to figure out a way, Kiernan, to do them all because that is your job and that's the obligation. And if you look at FinCEN and the way it is structured within the treasury uh, structure, Uh, they all complement each other. You can't expect to do rules and regulations without doing enforcement because how are people going to really understand what you're talking about? In many instances, you have to do that through enforcement and advisories and guidance, etc. But your knowledge of how you do uh, rulemaking also comes from that.
0: So we touched on this. FinCEN also has this oversight of MSBs. Thoughts about, you know, and I think this was certainly becoming increasingly a, a, an issue, cryptocurrencies, yeah. who's going to handle those? And, you know, is <laughs> it, I mean, it's, I, I think clearly FinSen has the AML responsibility over crypto, uh, yeah. crypto, whoever handles it. But, you know, obviously the CFTC, the SEC, anyway, yeah. it, it give a little perspective on the cryptocurrencies issue.
1: So I think FinCEN's in a great position, as you mentioned, to handle the cryptocurrency side of the house when it comes to CFT and when it comes to AML. I think that what we underestimate is their knowledge of how cryptocurrency works. They have some really good experts there that could actually be teaching some of the other agencies how it works. Listen, I think at the end of the day there is such a lack of clarity of where we're going in the crypto world, it would behoove all the government agencies to sit down in a room in one place, including FinCEN, including the OCC, including the FRB, including the SEC, including the FA, all of them sitting down and figure out, all right, who has responsibility for this? Let's do it in a thoughtful way. Because what industry wants, industry doesn't really care, they just want clarity. And by the way, so do the financial institutions, right? FinTech aside, they just want clarity. Uh, and I think we're in a position where the, the U.S. government, whether we like it or not, and having led the FIU here in the United States, we are the leaders. The world is looking at us to lead. And as Americans, we should be leading. And we're not leading in this one area.
0: So you've now been on the private sector for a bit. Has that changed how you see fighting financial crime? Uh, let me put it this way, more broadly. What do you think law enforcement doesn't understand Uh, that they could about the position of financial institutions.
1: I think what law enforcement doesn't understand, when I say law enforcement, I include regulators, I include everybody, right? Everybody in the government side. The sophistication with which financial institutions operate, the sophistication of payment systems, the sophistications of geography and the political nuances that involve you know, a global financial institution or a regulatory or a, a, a local financial institution. I think they don't see that. You just can't flip the switch. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. Now, do we want it to work that way? Yeah, we endeavor that we will be quicker in how we collect information and how we service information and all those things. But, Kieran, it doesn't work that way. Uh, and I think that law enforcement forgets that. They think that, you know, they can ask for something and it just magically appears. It doesn't. And I think another thing that law enforcement forgets is private sector really runs on their guidance. Give us guidance, be clear about it, and we'll follow. There is sometimes a a lack of that because there are different interests within different agencies. And and again, you and I are big believers in this. It goes back to public private partnerships. Having that clear Chatham House rule conversation amongst people who care about protecting the financial system and who care about protecting individuals and people from harm. I mean, once you get that in one place and have a candid conversation, that you show me what I need to see, I'll show you what, you know, I think it'll work.
0: Well, and it's interesting because I guess that going into the whole uh, feedback loop is AMLA calling for important Material back from law enforcement right. about what uh, the industry is doing right, what they're
1: doing wrong. So. Critical, yeah. critical, because we're in many ways, and I feel this way because I think I was spoiled in the government where I had access to a lot of information right, yeah. that yeah. I can make decisions on. Um, in many ways, I don't feel I have access to any of that information now to make important decisions that could help law enforcement. No.
0: Yeah. So, you know, we've talked about law enforcement, what they don't understand. What does the private financial sector not understand about law enforcement?
1: I think what they don't understand about law enforcement is the law enforcement, they have supervisors, too. Uh, They have bosses. They are, you know, for example, let's just take examiners, for example. Examiners have a hard job. They really do, and they're important to the system. And I think some financial institutions believe that examiners just do on their own. They don't. They have supervisors, they have constituents that they need to answer to, and I think that law enforcement forgets that as well.
0: Well, that also leads a little bit to, and it's kind of pushing it to a finer point, the FIU, the idea of the FIU. Well, there's the national FIU, FinCEN, and then there's the FIUs that are within uh, financial institutions. What uh, I don't know where to begin, but what can they share, or could they teach each other? Wow. Uh, they could
1: definitely teach each other, particularly in the Egmont system. Right, you've got a hundred and I don't know fifty-seven countries to yeah. Egmont. Having those institutions or those FIUs see what really happens in a global bank, I think would be mind blowing to these guys, and I think it would be mind blowing to law enforcement to actually sit in an ops room and see how those payments work and what we do in our controls in order to sniff it out, report it, or stop it, right? I think that would be critically important to
0: So let's talk a minute. We've kind of hit on this before. I'm going to conclude talking a little bit about potential going forward for a public-private partnership, but before we do that, the risk-based approach. I know that this is near and dear to your heart. Is, is it, what does it even
1: mean anymore? <laughs> Man... Uh, so I listen, I, I think there needs to be some really thoughtful conversation about the risk brace to crunch and what it means, to your point. Yeah. Uh, because it means something very different to so many different people. Right. Uh, and it means something different. Uh, and to financial institutions, the fear always is. It means something very different to our examiners than what it means to us or what it may mean to a different examiner. There has to be conversation about that together at the same time because i think they go hand in hand is what is efficient what is efficiency what is all that i think those conversations died over the last couple of years someone needs to not someone we all should have this conversation again in Chatham House rules, figuring it out so that we could all get on the same page.
0: If you had to sum up, what's broken in the risk-based approach, and and then the communication. Kind of communication, what does it mean between uh, government and uh, private sector, private sector, and yep. regu- both regulators and law enforcement, and real.
1: I think even amongst regulators and even amongst banks, what yeah. does it really mean? Yeah, right. Let's have that conversation. Yeah, we've put it down on paper. Woolspoke's we'll, got it down on paper. I think it's. You know other people put it on paper but what does it actually mean and for a financial institution does my examiner the examiner that comes in agree with that approach or is it more transaction box checking right listen the examiners want to do it too again to our point in our conversation earlier they also have bosses they have things that they need to make sure that they do But We all need to get on the same page because it is impossible for the financial system to work without a risk-based approach. It's just not possible.
0: But it's still, I'm going to go, it still works, I guess, right? It does. Because it's still probably the most efficient way to to allocate resources. I
1: think so. I think so. But is everything a risk, right? (laughs) So you have to, listen, I think banks really, banks, all financial institutions, really want to follow the risk-based approach. They're going to look, I think one of the things that makes financial crimes and power community different here than other banking communities and other sectors of the bank, whether it's, you know, Prudential, whatever, is that we actually care about our mission. All of us do, whether we're in the private sector or whether we're in the public sector. All of us come from the same place and we know what it means. But when you tell me I take a risk-based approach, that means that there are going to be other risks there that are going to be lower priorities because they're not a risk to our bank.
0: And you've got to have some... Got to decide. Make a call. leeway for that. Correct. Correct. Right. So uh, we touched on this earlier in the interview, but let's just return and, and maybe conclude with public-private partnerships. And has your opinion of them, or do you have a new
1: perspective having been in the private sector now? Well, listen, I was really lucky. Well, we, years ago, I, I'm not going to mention names, but these guys were great. We decided to do the first public-private partnership up in New York. There were a couple of banks. I was at DOJ at the time. Didn't know how that was really going to work. Some of the banks didn't want to sit with me because I was at Justice They thought they were gonna get indicted for the things that they were gonna say. Mm -hmm. Through those couple of years, we learned so much about the financial industry and about banks and the industry itself that I think really saved some of these banks with financial Mm -hmm. institutions. Having now been in the private sector and seeing it on the private sector side, it reinvigorates how important it is. There is so much that we can share and that I personally and my teams and I know other financial institutions can share with the government and law enforcement that would save them time, save them resources, make sure that they don't reinvent the wheel while we're looking at new technology. It is critical, but it has to be done in a certain way. And in that way, it has to be open and it has to be transparent, face-to-face, candid conversation. And is
0: there anything uh, legislatively that needs to be tweaked? I mean, there's always been this conversation about could you give security clearances to some people within financial institutions? I think you
1: can, and, and I think that would be a wise thing to do. I mean, I still maintain my security clearance for certain things. I mean, most of us that have come out of the government still have, and I think that would be really critically important. I think that regulators need to understand that simply because they're speaking to financial institutions or a bank here or a bank there, they're not picking winners. And I think they're always worried about that. None of us want to be the winner. None of us are seeking this for credit. We're seeking this to make sure that the financial system is secure because that's great for the economy and that's great for national security.
0: Well, Ken, uh, we have only begun to touch on the, the breadth of your career and the topics that you are familiar with. Uh, again, you know, FinCEN, uh, Time Now in the private sector, the DOJ, Asset Forfeiture. So we'll have to come back and we'll talk about Asset Forfeiture at some
1: point. Anytime. It is my pleasure.
0: <laughs> Kenneth Blanco, Chief Compliance Officer, Financial Crimes Unit at Citigroup. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, my friend. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Ken Blanco. I hope you found the podcast compelling and that you'll subscribe to Financial Crime Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud so that you'll receive an alert for each new podcast. Because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.